The year 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of the publication of Albert Broder's landmark paper on tumor grading. The foundation of what is now called personalized medicine is the idea that not all tumors or all patients are the same, and that differences in gene expression and phenotype correlate with outcome and inform how a patient is best treated. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Dr. Rondell Graham is head of gastrointestinal and liver pathology at the Mayo Clinic. He joins us today to discuss predictive and prognostic factors in colon cancer, where we've been, the implications of new technology such as artificial intelligence, as well as the future of targeted therapies. Rondell, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Joe. Thanks for having me on. And I hope you are doing well amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, it certainly is a unexpected global pandemic. We have a lot to talk about with regards to colon cancer. Let's just start right at the beginning because I think we're going to delve into molecular testing and cutting edge technology, but let's just bring it back to the very basics, which many people may not even be aware of, is the gross examination in pathology. So that's when a patient's tumor or part of his or her colon is removed at surgery. The first stop that makes is into the pathology lab where the pathologist or pathologist assistant examines and dissects the specimen. So I think there's a lot that happens at that stage that can impact the report and the prognostic information that's able to be generated. I guess two things. One is this distinction between T3 and T4, that is tumor invading all the way through the colon and involving the serosa or at the outer surface. And historically, pathologists haven't been so great necessarily at making that distinction. So can we talk just a little bit about uh, how we can improve on that? And then secondly, the other thing the pathologist does is dissect and submit lymph nodes for examination. Back when I was in training, I couldn't really wrap my head around this notion that the more lymph nodes you had, the better the patient was going to do, because it's a very odious task. And I finally realized that if you do not examine enough lymph nodes, there is a severe risk to downstaging the patient and then hence maybe not treating them appropriately. So could you comment on the importance of the gross examination? Well, thanks, Joe. I think those are really, really important questions. I'm going to start broad and then move to the more specific components that you you mentioned. I think it's important to understand that all of the analysis done in pathology um, can be grouped into pre-analytic components, analytic components, and post-analytic components. I think many people know uh, that there is an analytic component, and that's the part that usually is more flashy and has a branded name and things of those nature. Uh, and so it, it comes to people's mind right away when they think about a test or an analysis, they think about the analytic portion of the test. But the pre-analytic portion is absolutely critical. And despite the powerful technologies that are being used in the analysis of specimens today, if the pre-analytic portion of an assay or a test is suboptimal, in many instances, the analysis or the test will not be able to yield informative results. There are several pathology subspecialty groups who, are, who have actually chartered subgroups to examine the appropriate grossing or handling of pathologic specimens. And again, it's the recognition that specimen where there's an inadequate sampling or inappropriate sampling or suboptimal sampling will yield suboptimal histologic and molecular results. 
in terms of the more specific things, you got to T3 versus T4. There's been some literature showing that approximately 20% of T4 cases are missed, otherwise called T3. And this is a challenge because there are multiple factors that contribute to it. Uh, one of which is the serosa is not just flat and straight, it has an undulating contour which adds a level of uh, microscopic complexity. Of course, it's dependent on grossing and having the best quality uh, grossing as possible. And then, of course, there is an element of subjectivity of whether it is right on the serosa or not. And some people for some time have debated the significance of inflammation, perhaps, between the tumor cells and the actual being on the serosa and how close is close enough. The criteria laid out by the CAP and the, or the AHSCC actually suggests that the tumor cells have to be on the ink and on the serosa. And I think that's, those are the criteria that we ought to, to work with. But it's important to understand the undulating nature of the serosa in many parts of the colon. And also to appreciate that the, sample, the, the, uh, the specimen needs to be adequately sampled um, in order to get an accurate answer there. With respect to lymph nodes, I think that's a really important thing. And again, it's another multifactorial issue. The specimen needs to be adequately grossed, so the prosector or the uh, pathology resident or a, a pathologist assistant needs to do a very thorough job searching for lymph nodes. That's absolutely critical. Um, but there are other factors that influence how many lymph nodes are identified. Um, the quality of the resection matters, and that's part of the reason why lymph node count has actually shown up on some scorecards from some surgical groups with regard to the quality of the surgery. There's also the important point that you are mentioning. If you don't have enough nodes, or certainly if the nodal uh, sampling is incomplete, there's the potential to understage the patient, which might lead to a suboptimal uh, treatment plan and can lead to a worse outcome. And the other component I think that's interesting is that there's the possibility that patients mount different levels of immune response to the presence of the tumor. The more robust that immune response, perhaps the larger those lymph nodes are and the more readily recognizable they are. And so those, that's another potential factor. So these pre-analytic factors, the T stage and the lymph node status are absolutely critical. They're dependent on high quality, thorough grossing. They're dependent on adequate surgical resection, and there may be direct manifestations of the tumor biology, which, but uh, I think the thoroughness that pathologists bring to the examination of the specimen is absolutely critical to get informative results. Thank you for framing it that way in terms of this pre-analytical component, because if that is not done appropriately, everything that follows will be suboptimal. And that's very interesting, You, the point you made about the lymph nodes. It could be a reflection of the biology of an individual patient, which is very interesting that people may not consider, but then it's a matter of the effectiveness or quality of the surgery and the effectiveness of the pathologist doing his or her job, which historically has perhaps created maybe some tension or squabbles between the two disciplines of surgery and pathology. I'm just curious, in your institution or elsewhere, have you seen any um, contention around this area? That's a great question, uh, Joel. I've, I've heard it, of it. I haven't experienced it at our institution. One of the things that I've been fortunate to witness is a really robust, good dialogue between the, our surgical teams and our pathology group. And in terms of devising what a care process should look like, 
what we can expect from them, what they can expect from us, and what the best approaches are, would be. And I think there's been a lot of open dialogue and sharing of information and experiences, and it's been really open and transparent. I think that helps a lot. And maybe that's a, something to consider if you want to reach out to the uh, surgical team. It's nice to let them know what challenges you are having and explore what ways they think they may be able to help with those challenges. And I think sometimes when framed in that particular way, you can get really good engagement. It is important to remember that it is a team approach and that this multidisciplinary approach will ultimately yield the best outcomes. Now, once the specimen is examined by the pathologist in the gross room, uh, then we move into the microscopic examination. And of course, pathologists make the diagnosis, which most people are aware. But then a lot of what we do is in grading the specimen, which we've been doing for probably close to 100 years or so. Let's be honest, in colon in particular, it hasn't been tremendously effective in terms of prediction or prognosis. And particularly in colon cancer, there's a lot of different grading systems floating out there, some focusing on the architecture, what proportion of the tumor is making glands. Some grading systems have nuclear grades, some don't. Some have a three-tier system. Others have, I, I believe the Mayo Clinic, you folks use a four-tier uh, classification system. So why is this? Why haven't we been very good at grading tumors or why hasn't our grading been good at correlating with outcome? And why is there this level of disagreement on what is perhaps the best grading system to use? If I could take a, a step back to where grading began, uh, grading actually began at the Mayo Clinic with Albert Broders, uh, who was a former faculty at Mayo. He was one of the first three uh, staff pathologists at Mayo Clinic, and he developed uh, a grading system, which is where our original four-tier grading system came from. And that grading system was first applied to squamous cell carcinomas. That phenomenon was completely new at the time in medicine. Uh, Mayo became a major center focused on grading uh, a long time ago. And since then, that's kind of been part of the tradition at Mayo. Mayo has since moved on, and, so, and the world, of course, has moved on. And there are multiple different grading systems for different tumors. And of course, that is, is a normal part of progress. But of course, it adds layers of complexity because people do things in different ways. The data support the utility of grading in, certain, in the context of colon cancer broadly in that tumors that are poorly differentiated or high grade tend to have a worse prognosis. There is a problem with the reproducibility of grading and there's also the recognition that the vast majority of colorectal cancers up until the most recent WHO classification system were categorized as moderately differentiated. So there were very few that were ever considered to be poorly differentiated and very few considered to be well differentiated. So the WHO has addressed that by now deciding that the grade should be determined based on the worst area and not necessarily on the proportion of the tumor that has a gland formation. Presumably that will help with greater stratification. I think one of the challenges with grade is that um, I think it's easy to, uh, to say uh, um, verbally but it's an entirely different thing to have a person grade independently in their own practice. It's one thing to look at a single picture or a PowerPoint slide. It's another thing to actually go through an entire case with multiple slides and determine across all those slides what is the composite grade. And that conceptual challenge exists in multiple areas in pathology. And I think that's one of the limitations with the grade derived from human beings. As we enter into an age where there's going to be an increasing use of augmented human intelligence or artificial intelligence, 
there's the potential to use machine learning and computers to come up with a more reproducible way of assigning grades. But I think these are still early days yet. I think we'll see things like that develop. This is terribly exciting. I completely agree. There is this element of uh, sub- subjectivity, which makes it a challenge. Many aspects of pathology, it makes it a challenge. And being able to incorporate digital pathology and machine learning and so forth will certainly give us an element of standardization. So do you think we'll be able to improve on the predictive and prognostic capabilities using digital pathology? I think it's a real possibility. I think the key elements are going to be um, you need to have robust computational power, but you also need to have that pipeline, that end-to-end pipeline validated against clinical outcomes. So I think people can develop pipelines and algorithms, but if they haven't been validated with clinical outcomes, it becomes hard to understand their utility. So I think it's going to be critical to develop those um, artificial intelligence tools. I think we will see those tools develop um, and I think they're going to be very powerful, but we'll realize their potential when they are mapped to clinical outcomes. That is, if an algorithm is developed to provide a prognostic score in colon cancer or the prediction of response to treatment, it really ought to be developed in concert with uh, the results from the actual clinical treatment of patients or how those patients actually did. Um, and so I think that potential definitely exists. Artificial intelligence and computational tools are being used in a number of centers in the U.S., and in Europe in research applications. And I think it's a matter of time, and hopefully not too long, that they will move into the clinical space. I think you're right. People are in love with the technology and very excited about it. Those tried and true principles of analytical validation, clinical validation, and clinical utility uh, still very much apply. And we have a lot of work ahead of us to develop these systems. In the realm of H&E pathology, that is examining the uh, specimen under the microscope, I was heartened to review the NCCN clinical practice guidelines, and they reaffirmed, in some sense, the importance of the pathologist looking under the microscope by including things like tumor budding, as well as uh, perineural invasion as being significant prognostic factors for colon cancer. Can you talk a little bit about those in terms of subjectivity and the robustness of those markers? And then similarly, do you think there's going to be an opportunity to improve on on the powers of, of those tools as well with digital pathology? So that's a great question, Joe. Um, with regard to tumor budding and perineural vision, um, absolutely the now, I think being recognized in a formal way, um, very particularly tumor button, um, as a predictor of outcome. And I think the, there's, there's a lot of data for that um, in the literature. I think there, there's a challenge with the interpretation of, of both tumor button and perineural invasion with, with regard to subjectivity. I think that's actually true for many things that we do, like you uh, mentioned previously. There's some data to show that with training, pathologists can improve and they certainly can get better or more consistent. Uh, I think the real opportunity comes from using computational tools to be able to do this in a reproducible way. I think that both of those things are a manifestation of an aggressive tumor, aggressive biology. And I think that there probably are computational tools that can help us to do this uh, because computers are particularly excellent at counting 
and once we can um, find a way for the to kind of train our computers to recognize this pattern in the same way that we train people to recognize this pattern I think there's a potential for it to be much more standardized which will then give us some um, the opportunity then to validate it and to map it to clinical outcomes and then to see it I can perhaps even more widely than it is used at present the other interesting thing is I think once we do that because we know that this is a manifestation of uh, adverse tumor biology I think in so doing we can begin to create data sets when we stratify patients by their high or low tumor body and look at their molecular characteristics and then be able to determine what that tumor body phenotype correlates with on a molecular level uh, on an immune microenvironment level that may be targetable and so i think there's a lot of exciting opportunities to come yeah that is a very interesting approach and perhaps underutilized is this idea of correlating the h and e features with the molecular findings People are very much interested in molecular, of course. So once we're done with the gross examination and the H&E examination under the microscope, then, and only then, can we really start to begin thinking about molecular studies. With colon cancer, microsatellite instability seems to be the gift that keeps on giving in many ways. Testing for MSI began, at least in colon cancer, looking for cases of hereditary colon cancer or Lynch syndrome, which accounted for about 5% of cases. Of course, there were microsatellite unstable cases that were sporadic, which I think was about 10% of cases. But it's interesting how this uh, testing has evolved. So first looking for heritable forms of colon cancer, but then moving into the realm of a prognostic marker, and a lot of that work was done at the Mayo Clinic, led by Dan Sargent and other investigators. And then finally, now it's being used as a tool to identify who may be a candidate for immune therapy as well, Keytruda, the new PD-1 inhibitor from Merck. So can you comment on how you've seen this testing evolve? Yeah, I was fortunate to be in the molecular lab with Steve Thibodeau while he was a director in our molecular lab and one of the people who co-discovered the phenomenon of microsatellite instability. Uh, he was in really he is a really incredible mind and it was it was great to, to work with him in the clinical practice. And I think you're correct, the initial set of orders that we would have been seeing um, in our clinical practice for microsatellite instability were focused on making a diagnosis of Lynch syndrome. That was the lion's share of it. The subsequently was the recognition that microsatellite unstable tumors had a different prognosis uh, from tumors that were microsatellite stable and that also drove uh, some orders but I think we saw the most dramatic increase with the recognition that microsatellite instability or high levels of microsatellite instability predicted response to immune checkpoint blockade and so that was where we saw the most dramatic increase in testing. Fortunately that uh, landmark paper uh, from Diaz and colleagues identified cases by both immunohistochemistry and the PCR um, microsatellite instability assay and that was really helpful I think because one of the immediate questions that arose was what tests do we need to do to determine whether patients are going to be eligible for treatment or not and because both of those were included in that clinical trial the the, you know, the FDA felt that it was, it was useful or reasonable to have either of those be, be markers. You know, because of the improvements in technology and massive parallel sequencing or next generation sequencing, now we have another mechanism or another method rather 
to evaluate microsatellite instability, and that's with NGS. And so what you, we're seeing now is the emergence of NGS as now another method, and it offers um, some advantages, some strategic advantages, because it doesn't require normal, and so logistically that's easier for many labs to offer a test for a given patient requiring only a single specimen, uh, and perhaps only just the tumor. And it also offers the potential to be multiplex with other analytes uh, or other biomarkers in a single assay, which you know leads to some operational efficiencies and some logistical benefits. I think there are ongoing investigations by some groups to determine whether there's also a cost effectiveness um, by taking this approach. And we also are seeing some benchtop assays wherein we're able to see the turnaround of specimens in just a matter of hours without using normal. It's been fun to see that development. And again, the opportunities to improve patient care have grown with each of those uh, advances. And maybe we should just take a step back just for those listening who might not be as intimately aware as some in the field might be that we're talking about microsatellite instability, which is referring to repetitive re- microsatellites are repetitive regions of RNA. Uh, in and of themselves, it's nothing special. I have them, you have them, but it's when they become abnormally long or abnormally short that it becomes problematic. And then these genes encode for uh, mismatch repair proteins. So what is an interesting phenomenon is the patients, or maybe counterintuitive, is the patients with the defect actually do better. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but uh, is there any reason uh, for that, or can you offer us any insight as to why that might be? That's a great question. So there are some really great data on this. Patients with microsatellite instability um, have a more robust immune response to their tumors. It's believed that this is related to the formation of mutation-associated neoantigens. And these neoantigens are detected by T-cells in the microenvironment and they uh, orchestrate an anti-tumor response. Because of the hypermutability in those tumors, that immune response is robust because of the sheer increasing numbers of neoantigens. And so these patients have a, um, uh, have a better prognosis. or that, That's believed to underlie the better prognosis. Um, so really, the phenomenon is microsatellite instability correlates to a, a more robust immune response. And the driver of that is believed to be the production of mutation-associated neoantigens at a much higher rate than you would have in a microsatellite-stable tumor. That is fascinating. It's hard to wrap your head around in many ways. So the next area in molecular I'd like to touch on is KRAS testing, probably one of the big therapeutic advances in terms of colon cancer over the past 10 to 15 years has been the emergence of anti-EGFR targeted therapy, these tyrosine kinase inhibitors, atuximab and panitubumab, and the way we test for eligibility for those agents is by looking at KRAS, and it's interesting how that's evolved as well. Originally, we were testing for, I believe, only two mutations, codon 12 and codon 13, for KRAS, which has since been expanded to what people are calling expanded RAS testing to include KRAS as well as NRAS. But even if you do that, we're still only should be looking for about six mutations. But we know in actual practice with the advent of NGS, we're practically looking for any and all possible mutations in many labs in KRAS or NRAS. So how do we interpret all of that information and how do you handle that? 
That's a great question, uh, Joe. I think the identification of KRAS mutations in colon cancer was really uh, important um, in terms of understanding the biology of colon cancer, and it provided an opportunity to begin to understand the, the pathway that KRAS is a part of, the MAPK pathway, to identify treatment options that may be effective. And so we had the development of anti-EGFR therapy, and patients who are wild type for KRAS and BRAF will benefit from anti-EGFR therapy or as a you know alone, meaning without other uh, biologics, if you will. That's really critical and that is a major driver of testing. And so you're correct that many labs offer expanded RAS testing and a lot of that is driven by a really critical paper that was published, I believe, by a French group in either 2013 or 2014 in the New England Journal of Medicine showing that those patients who appeared to be wild type initially, but did not have a response, were enriched for a group of patients who had mutations in exons three and four. So most testing initially only included KRAS exon two, but by including coverage for exons three and four, we had a much greater accuracy of determining whether a tumor was RAS mutated or not. And so we could have a better match to the, the phenotype of the tumor to the therapy and so the patients who are most likely to benefit were then getting the drug, and those who are not more who are unlikely to benefit were not. And the other thing those authors found was that not only were patients who were KRAS mutant less likely to respond to anti-EGFR therapy, they were more likely to die of their disease. And so it allowed for a much better matching of, of patients and therapy by doing the expanded RAS testing. Well, Rondell Graham, this has been uh, incredibly informative. Now, before we wrap up, you were mentioning the NTREC gene fusion, which I think is one of the more recent FDA approvals for uh, targeted therapy. And what is interesting is that it is agnostic of tumor type. That is, it is it is not specific for colon cancer, although it certainly is going to play a large role there, but it is for essentially any tumor type. So we have the NTREC targeted therapy as well as the immune therapy. Clearly, this is the way things are going, that we're moving away from a disease-specific approach towards a mutation-specific approach. So how are you incorporating those uh, in your practice at Mayo Clinic, and what do you think the future is going to hold in this area? It's a great question, Joel. Um, I think with regard to our practice um, and the context of colon cancer, we, are, we do molecular profiling on our tumors as our oncologists believe will be relevant for the clinical practice. So guided by them, we have devised uh, testing algorithms to provide right, the right information and the information they need at the time of their meeting the patients to determine what treatment options will be available to, to patients. And so we kind of have a very thoughtful cascade. We do universal lynch syndrome screening as many places do and as recommended by the NCCM. And then we kind of follow a cascade based on what our oncologists and patients need. And so when the patient comes to their visit, we hope to be able to provide them with molecular data paired with the pathologic data, so or the histopathologic data, so they will know whether there are, there's an opportunity with regard to immunotherapy or whether there's an opportunity with regard to entract targeted therapy. And so those things are all happening from the time we receive the specimen and make a final diagnosis um, in our practice. Um, do I think more of this will happen? I think absolutely. I think that shift from uh, therapy targeted at diagnosis, targeted 
and instead targeted toward the underlying biology probably will continue. I think our practice will probably follow the science where there are really compelling data to support the benefit or utility of an approach. I think that approach will be incorporated as quickly uh, and as responsibly as possible. And I think what we will see is uh, investigators continue to look for the Achilles heel of neo uh, of neoplasms, and specifically in this context, colon cancer, and that may include some novel combinations, um, or may include uh, targeted therapies, and maybe include some creative type of regimens where we could perhaps augment the immune response uh, or augment uh, potential production of the antigens, and then follow that with immunotherapies. So I think all these types of uh, things are possible, and I think we'll see more and more of this in the future. Well, Rondell Graham, thank you so much for coming on. How can folks learn more about you, GI pathology, molecular diagnostics, and the Mayo Clinic? It's a lot. Yeah, I think that's a lot. The places that I think have a lot of terrific information, the Association of Molecular Pathologists, um, they have a, re a really robust uh, society of which I'm fortunate to be a part. Lots of educational resources on their website, and they put out lots of great material. The College of American Pathologists uh, has a lot of great material for people who are interested in knowing more about the field of pathology. The United States and Canadian Academy of Pathology has a really robust educational platform. Now in the time of the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of that is free. I think those are great places to learn more. Uh, MailClinic.org has a wealth of information available if you want to learn more about MailClinic. If you are a patient wanting to learn uh, more information, that's a great place to go. Mail Clinic is a place with a tremendous amount of expertise and fantastic teamwork. Um, people can find me on Twitter at, at Rondell underscore Graham. And I'm really grateful to be on, Joe, to talk with you a little bit about colic acid. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Our guest has been Rondell Graham from the Mayo Clinic. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. Mm -hmm.